Blog Talk Radio. at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and I want to welcome the callers and chatters to research at the National Archives and Beyond. This show will provide individuals interested in genealogy and history an opportunity to listen, learn, and take action. If you have logged in as a guest and you wish to participate in the chat, please sign in through your Facebook account or blog, Talk Radio. Tonight's show is about the award-winning memoir, Witness to Change, From Jim Crow to Political Empowerment, with author Mrs. Sybil Heidel Morial. Mrs. Morio is an activist and community leader in New Orleans. She spent her career in the education field, first as a public school teacher and later as an administrator at Xavier University. In her memoir, she reveals a woman whose intelligence overrides the cliches of racial division. In its pages, we catch rare glimpses of black professionals in an earlier New Orleans when races, though socially isolated, lived side by side, when social connections helped to circumvent Jim Crow, when African-American culture forged New Orleans an American identity. Through loving eyes, Mrs. Moriel traces the rise of her sons and daughters. After Duchess' death, Mark Moriel served two terms as New Orleans mayor. Sybil's other children, a physician, a public policy strategist, a community development director, and a judge, led and served their communities before and after Hurricane Katrina's devastation. So let me give a warm welcome to Mrs. Sybil Heidel Moriel to research at the National Archives and Beyond. Welcome, Mrs. Moriel. Thank you. I'm delighted to be on your show, and I welcome all your listeners. Well, I'm delighted to have you, and I just have to say once again, congratulations on winning the gold medal for your memoir through the 2016 Independent Publisher Book Awards. 
Thank you for that. So, so let's start at kind of your beginning. What motivated you to write your memoir? I hadn't planned to do it, uh, but I was displaced by Hurricane Katrina. My house flooded. Uh, I evacuated to Baton Rouge where my daughter was. We thought it was going to be three days and then three weeks, and it ended up being eight years. So while I was displaced, oh, incidentally, I had retired from Xavier University two months before Katrina. So I was just about to embark on a small business. Well, the the, the uh, flood ended that because my business partner uh, went to another city, and he's he's never come back. But anyhow, as I was displaced, uh, um, I began to capture my memories in my head because I had lost all my memorabilia, my photographs, all the things that were dear to me during my life. And each night I would think about an event, and then the next morning I'd get on the computer. And when I had about 15 stories, I said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to put this together for my children and grandchildren. And that grew into a book, my memoir. And you you have a legacy. I mean, it's, it is something when you talk about loss and losing everything. And so what you had was in your head. And so you put that together in a memoir. I wonder how many people even think, that, you know, maybe they should write a memo, a memoir. So how long did it take for you to get everything together? Well, Bernice, I, I was really... Um doing it for myself. It was healing mm-hmm. for me to be there writing about events in my life while I was dealing with the tragedies because I, after a flood, I had fire, and then I had litigation. Oh, so no. it was like five years of dealing with tragedy. Um, so, you know, it just came about uh, because I was capturing my memories. I had, you know, uh, the fire couldn't take my memories from my head, and so uh, I began to write it down. But I tell you what, I, t- I took a course at LSU, uh, one of the evening courses in creative writing. I had done a lot of writing in my life, reports and proposals and press releases and all kinds of factual uh, uh, papers, but I had never done written anything for people's pleasure. So that's why I took this course. And it did mm-hmm. help me. Uh, but I went along and wrote and wrote and wrote. Uh, I asked my teacher of that course uh, if she would review my, my work and give me ideas, give me suggestions, counsel me. And that's how it happened. I met with her about once a month. I'd bring all that I had written. And she, you know, she said, well, you need, you need some more dialogue here. Uh, what time of year was it? So she helped me to create this picture that I, would, I was conveying to the people who would read my book. But it took eight years. I was in no hurry. I was healing myself. I, at uh-huh. the beginning, I had no idea it was going to be for public uh, consumption. But it ended up, I had about th- 1,000 pages. My editor says, we've got to cut this down to 250. So I really, what I cut is really another book. Uh, after the book came out, my children said, Mom, you forgot this. Why didn't you tell this story? 
So those are in my computer. I just need to uh, pull them out and organize them. Right, and we have a comment coming from the chat room from uh, Michael Henderson, who's also an author of Got Proof, and he he's stating that sometimes the collection of memories are the first steps toward crafting a wonderful book. Mm-hmm. So he's agreeing with you. He's right. He's <laughs> Definitely. Right. Yes. Has he written so a memoir you- or does... He he has written a book about his his journey to discover oh. truth about his family from mm-hmm. New Orleans. Mm-hmm. Oh my. Mhm. So let's talk about uh, the title of your book because I, I think that title is interesting. How did you decide on the title? Witness to change from Jim Crow to political empowerment. I didn't have a title for it, but I I thought that the title would come to me as I wrote the book. And I began with my growing up during Jim Crow. And as my story moved along, this idea came to me from from Jim Crow to political empowerment. But also the the drastic change, when the most sweeping change in, in this country happened during the Civil Rights Movement, so it it all came together. And when I say witness to change, people have said, well, why do you say witness when you were a participant in change? I said, well, you know, it, it was because I witnessed it that I could write about it and that I wanted to participate. As I saw what was evolving, I wanted to be a part of the change. That's right. And so you have that kind of that firsthand experience that we're reading about in your book, but maybe some people have never experienced it. So let's talk about some of those significant events that occurred in your life that you felt compared to share in your book. Well, the first thing, the prologue of my book, is my uh, becoming a debutante when I was 17 years old. And it mm-hmm. was a, a wonderful affair, but it was almost an awakening for me as I thought about it. Here we are, you know, this grand ball and all dressed up and all this, you know, pomp and circumstance. But look how we have to live. I have to sit behind the screen on the bus. I can't go to public places because black people were just barred from all public places. And I thought the irony of it was that this this is a pretend life, this debutante business. And I I think it was when I became aware that, you know, this we've got to fix this. Um, And then when the Supreme Court decision came down outlawing uh, segregation in the public schools, that was sort of the beginning of the civil rights movement. And I was living in Boston at the time. I was in school with Martin Luther King, incidentally, and other students. And those of us who were from the South, when we learned about the Supreme Court decision, we acknowledged that change was coming. And I had a job teaching in a wonderful uh, school district in Massachusetts, a plum teaching position that that all the graduates wanted. Um, But 
I wanted to co- come back home to be a part mm-hmm. of the change. And all of us, Martin Luther King and uh, uh, John from Jacksonville and Mem- there were those from Memphis and Birmingham, uh, we all wanted to go home to be a part of the change. Now, we had no idea what that was going to be. You know, we it, it sort of evolved. First came the court cases and then fighting the, repealing the, the laws in the South, and then the demonstrations, and then our leader, Martin Luther King, who uh, who, who uh, proposed nonviolent uh, demonstrations. And so it evolved, and we became a part of that. Right. But as in, in your very beginning, because you, you mentioned the pretend, which you call the pretend world of becoming a debutante, but recognizing that there was something else going around you, just share with some of the listeners just exactly what was going on around you that perhaps they have never experienced. Well, blacks were excluded from every public place. Uh, We couldn't go to restaurants and hotels. Uh, Some movie houses we couldn't go to. There were other movie houses where we had to sit in the balcony. Uh, if we wanted to take out food, we had to go to the back colored window. We couldn't even step inside. We couldn't go to the museums. We couldn't go, to, you know, to the theaters. Uh, so, you know, it was just a second-class citizenship for us. We were reminded every day when we went out in the public that we were not equal to the white people in the community. And that's what it was. And as our parents told us, we would go by Pontchartrain Beach that had all the rides, the roller coaster, and we could see the Ferris wheel and all of that. When we were kids, we wanted to go. And my parents said, well, we're not allowed to go. And so, you know, we had to accept all of that. But they always, my parents always gave me hope you know, that someday it's going to change. And mm-hmm. it mm-hmm. certainly did, but it, it with a lot of effort and sacrifice and bloodshed, uh, the change came about. Right. And but so I you... you... It, really came in, it okay. really came into focus when I left here. I went to Xavier University for two years, transferred mm-hmm. to Boston University, just because I wanted to experience another city, another place, other people. And that's when everything was open, and I loved it. Mm-hmm. I could go mm-hmm. anywhere that my few dollars would take me. And my friends uh, in the dormitory and friends in, in my classes, uh, we went together, my white friends and my black friends, and it was wonderful. And I guess that motivated uh, my involvement in the change in the South. It should be like this everywhere for us. Right, right. And even I you know, read when you were heading out to college and you were on the train mm-hmm. and how you had to sit in a certain section of the train. We had to sit and in once the baggage you... car, yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Now, it was separated with a wall, but it was half half the train car. And 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 the uh, the porter would direct you step up and turn right, 
and that was where uh, black people had to sit. We were called colored then. We were called colored, Mm -hmm. and then Negro, and then black, and then African American. It all worked during the time that it was used. Um, And then not only that, not only sitting in the baggage car, but when, when it came time to eat, to go to the dining car. Now, that just happened uh, two years before my train ride, that you could eat in the dining car. When you stepped into the dining car, they escorted you to the table right by the kitchen, and they drew a curtain around your table. So white people wouldn't have to look at you. So it was, you know, the humiliation was ongoing all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, All so the time. Most, most people, yes. when they went on the train, they took lunch. I did take lunch and went to the dining car for dinner, but they they brought their food on the on the car on, on the train. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, we have a comment coming out of the chat by Mark Rudinay, and he's stating that he loves your book, especially Hello, uh, Mark, chapter eleven. I love your 11. story too. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Well, he said he enjoyed Chapter 11, Into the Trenches, because you saw voting rights. Yeah, so long denied black as a major vehicle for overcoming equality. So could you comment on the Louisiana League of Good Government, which you organized? Yes. Well, first of all, my husband was an attorney, and he was – in practice with A.P. Turo, who was the dean of black attorneys at the time. And they were involved in strategizing uh, the repeal of the state laws. After the Supreme Court decision, the state laws, all the southern state laws had to be changed, and he was a part of that. At that time, I had two little children, and I couldn't wait for him to come home to tell me what was going on. You know, it was it was evolving. We were in the courts, and there were pickets, and there were boycotts and demonstrations, and that wasn't enough for me. So uh, I, I belonged to us. There were eight of us, young women who had children, and we also had jobs. And and I said, we need to be out there. I mean, I don't want to be a spectator. I want to be out there doing something. So. I had a friend who was a member of the League of Women Voters, a white friend, and she said, well, you know, you ought to come and do some voter registration with us. I said, well, the first thing is we need to do it at our convenience. We could join the other organizations that are doing voter registration. Um, But she said, well, come on. Well, they rejected me because the state law was that blacks and whites could not meet together. Blacks and whites could not eat together. So it sort of motivated me to, you know, to say, well, I really want to do this. So our our group was called SICULSO, Civic, Social, and Cultural uh, uh, Things that we did. And I said, let's let's get this started. So we did, just the six of us. We invited uh, uh, a number of women uh, across all ages. Uh, to our first meeting, uh, 65 people came. We talked about doing voter registration. We targeted three uh, predominantly black neighborhoods. The black churches were always open for us to meet and do our workshops. So that's what we did. We targeted four neighborhoods, and we 
one night a week, we went and reviewed the voter registration process, which was very involved and meant to uh, keep blacks from becoming registered voters. To become a registered voter, you had to pass a citizenship test, a literacy test. You had to have certain identification, and and sometimes they switched it on you. You didn't, you, you know, you had to have your uh, a proof of your residence through a water bill or electric uh, utility bill, and then you had to figure your birthday in years, months, weeks, and days. Now, that's something that a Ph.D. has to figure out ahead of time. That's very involved. So we would meet with the people and review all of this and encourage them to go in. In some cases, we took them. Uh, not many of us, though, because we, uh, we had jobs. We were teachers, and we were free in the late afternoon. And... Uh, some many of them were rejected. They were nervous. The deputy registrars were, were rude to them in some instances, and so that's what we did. These people that we met with always wanted to be vo- voters, and they never had the opportunity because they ne- they needed to help to review everything. I mean, those of us who are college graduates, you need to review yourself, <laughs> you know. Especially the citizenship test, you know, just to get a general idea. So that was uh, that was what prevented a lot of people, a lot of black people, from becoming registered voters, and that was the intent of all of the expectations to become a registered voter. Yes, it certainly was the intent, and it was just a, a arduous process. As you yes. have mentioned, just to think that they would have to pass a citizenship test. And mm-hmm. then how in the world could they calculate the birthdays? Uh, how many people did you actually help to become registered voters that actually became registered voters? Oh, m- most of them did. Some of them went mm-hmm. back two and three and four times. I mean, they mm-hmm. were determined. Some of them came back and were tearful because they were, you know, because they failed. They were tearful because they were treated in a in a nonprofessional way, that they were humiliated. But they mm-hmm. were determined. And in one of the places that I uh, did the workshop, it was the first senior citizen's residence uh, uh, developed by the federal government uh, for low-income seniors. And one of the residents was a well-spoken man who came to our workshops in a suit and tie every time. And he was the motivator. You know, he says, look, we have to do this. You can do this. It was hard for me, but you can all do this. So he was the one that was really uh, the spokesperson while we, while we did the work. But in the other workshops, the ministers came by and encouraged them. But it was just a very difficult process. That, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But this, that generation of people, they wanted their voice heard, and they were willing to do what needed to be done. 
speak and that's out. what I mean. That's what being an American means to to exactly. have that right, exactly. that right to vote, and then to realize that the system was set up to deny that right back in the exactly. Jim Crow era. Exactly. You know, w- one of the things that I, I I like about your your memoir and sharing your witness to change is that you have an opportunity to tell people, wait, this is the way it was. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You yeah. experienced it. You're not reading a book about it. You're telling people you were there. You were right there watching it. You were a part of it. You grew up through it, and you saw that change take place. And that's what's special about a memoir. You, you're let into people's lives. And it's an easy read because it's it's not a report, it's not a historical account. It's this is what this is where I was, this is what was going on uh, during that time in my life. And mm-hmm. uh, another thing that our organization did it was we named it the Louisiana League of Good Government. And you know, strange after the law change, after the civil rights law, the League of Women Voters that rejected me. Now, they didn't reject me. That wasn't their choice, but it was the law. They invited uh, the Louisiana League of Good Government to merge with them, and we had found our niche. You know, we we knew we, we wanted to be in the black community, and mm-hmm. so we said, thank you, but no thank you. <laughs> uh, so, But another thing that we did, too, we held Meet the Candidates uh, meetings, uh, and the first one that we had, um, there were 100 candidates. I mean, it was the mayor, the council, the legislature, and all the parochial offices. And so we didn't know if anybody was going to come because most of the candidates were white. And Moon Landrieu, who was uh, running for this, who was on the city council then, I asked him, he and my husband were friends. He's a white guy. He proceeded uh, Dutch as mayor. Um, I said, Moon, you think anybody's going to come to it? He said, I'll tell you what, I'm coming. I said, well, that's good enough. If you come, if just you come, it's worth doing it. Well, I, we had about 50 candidates there. They came mm-hmm. with bells on. And we asked some, some of them hard questions, you know. It was a, it was a reception-type setup. They were given a chance to talk, but we asked questions. And through the years we did that. I mean, we would ask questions about what are you go- are you going to appoint anybody to city boards and commissions, and you know what are you going to do about these specific things. So this, the people uh, began to un- to know that we had these meet the candidates sessions, and they would they would come because we had uh, some clout. We had people. We had a following. We helped to get the vote out. You know, we we uh, uh, got involved on election days, knocking on doors, and we even had a motorcade with a loudspeaker going through neighborhoods to tell them to tell the voters to get out and vote. So we were very active for forty years. What ended our organization was Katrina. It just displaced oh, wow. so many of our people that we never got together. But for 40 years, we were doing voter registration. We were doing meet the candidates. We were 
uh, doing get out the vote. And you set the standard. The yeah, candidates least, had to come out. <laughs> you right. Know? They knew we, they, they knew had to had come out. Voting power, yes. Mm-hmm. That's yeah. right. I'm, I'm hearing that. I mean, they, they knew you had voting power. Mm-hmm. And the fact that you were able to, to help in that voter registration process just gave you even more clout. Right. And an illegitimacy in the community because certainly the community trusted trusted the Louisiana League of Good Government mm-hmm. to do the right thing, and that is exactly what you all were doing. Mm-hmm. Well, we're going to take a quick break and then come right back. Okay, just a quick break. Welcome back to Research at the National Archives and Beyond blog, Talk Radio. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett, and you can join me every Thursday at 9 p.m. Eastern Time, where I will have an expert to share resources, stories, and answer your burning genealogy and history questions. Remember, all of my guests share a deep passion and knowledge of genealogy and history. All of my shows are available as a podcast immediately after the broadcast, and they can be downloaded from Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, TuneIn.com, and Stitcher.com. Now, I have opened the phone lines for anyone that would like to call in and make a comment or ask a question. When you call 646-200-0491, please press 1 to speak to the host. You have been listening to Mrs. Sybil Heidel Moriel share her memoir, Witness to Change, from Jim Crow to Political Empowerment. Well, Mrs. Morial, you were sharing with us about the whole voter registration activities that you were engaged in, but let's go back a while before we go forward. And let's talk about uh, you finishing college, teaching school, and then trying to get into, let's say, Tulane University. So tell us about that experience. The year was 19... 19- 54, the Supreme Court decision had just outlawed segregation in public schools. I came home for the summer. I was teaching in Massachusetts, as I said earlier. I came home for the summer, and um, 
while I was teaching, I was in graduate school in the evening. Um, met up again with Judge Moriel, who would become my husband. And he mentioned to me the day after I got back, we were talking about the Supreme Court decision. And he said, you know, I heard that Tulane, we were just having a general discussion, and this was one item he mentioned to me. He said Tulane, uh, the Tulane faculty passed a resolution saying that Tulane should admit uh, students regardless of race. It was a 100-strong uh, faculty uh, senate, it was called. And so um, I said, you know what? Um, do they have summer school? And he he said yes. I said, well, I can take two courses for three credit hours that Boston University would take toward my uh, master's degree. When does summer school start? I could take two courses, and you know that would apply to my master's degree. This was a Friday. He said summer school starts on Monday. Well, I hadn't applied. I hadn't been accepted. I said, I'm going to give it a try. And the motivation was, is that going, after the Supreme Court decision, when were the schools going to be integrated in the South? Was it going to be in the fall? We had no idea. The judge said, with all deliberate speed. So I went to uh, Tulane on Monday morning. I went to the dean of the graduate school. I told him that I wanted to take two courses, but I had not applied. I just learned about the summer school, uh, uh, but I don't have a, you don't have my transcript. Uh, may I register? He thought for a minute, and then he says, well, "Why don't you go to the courses that you want to take, and uh, ask Boston University to wire your transcript? When your transcript comes, you can formally register." I thought, "My, you know, this is too easy." <laughs> so I did go to class. And each after after class, I would go to the dean's office to see if my transcript had come. Well, the fourth day it had come, and he said, "Miss Heidel, step into my office." I thought to myself, "Uh oh, this is it." I sat down, and he gave me a registration form. On that registration form, on the third line, was race, and I marked N for Negro. <clears throat> And I wondered, why didn't he have me fill out this form the first day and reject me? So I filled it out and gave it back to him. He looked down, and he said, you know, you're the kind of student we would like to have here. We got your transcript. But we can't admit you because Tulane does not admit Negroes. Well, I, I knew that. But my husband, Dutch, and I thought, just to be there, just to put it on their minds that this is mm -hmm. coming. Every hour I was there, they had to be conscious of what was coming. So I let him mull through his explanation that, who, that, Tulane, that Paul Tulane had endowed the university for white men, that women could go to the sister school, Newcomb, uh, and take courses at Tulane. But they could not enter a program. They could not enter graduate school. They could just take random courses. I let him struggle through it. And in the end, I just walked out, went to the pay phone. There were no cell phones then. 
called Dutch and said, well, it's over. They asked me to leave. He said, well, why don't you go next door to Loyola and see if they'll take you? Maybe they have a, a course or two that, that, you know, is what you can apply. I went over to Loyola, and, you know, immediately they, they said, well, we don't admit Negroes at Loyola, only because it's against the law in the state of Louisiana. So I left. So that was it. You know, that was just two months after the Supreme Court decision. But it did make the students think because one student uh, offered uh, his library card use to me. Uh, They invited me to go to lunch with them in the cafeteria, and I was kind of reluctant to do that. But I did Uh go in. All I got was some stairs. And um, when I came out, there was... uh, they wrote uh, a column in in the uh, student newspaper, the Hullabaloo, about the black student who was on campus. But by the time it came out, I was gone. I had been dismissed. So that was one incident. But you know, it did it did make them aware, and uh, the change was coming. It took nine years. And then years. how long after that? Oh, it took nine years. Nine years, and a, and a head, suit had to be filed. A civil rights attorney, instant, ironically, a white civil rights attorney argued the case, and a white philanthropist paid for, uh, paid the lawyer. But it was nine years later before black students could be admitted to the graduate school. And were you able to get a copy of that article? I know you said Hurricane Betsy, you, you lost so much Absolutely. during the, the hurricane. No, I don't have any of that. I don't have any of that. Mm-hmm. I had the letter that was sent to my husband. My husband was the first black graduate of LSU Law School. And I had mm-hmm. the letter I, in my hand about a month before Katrina of his acceptance at LSU Law School. And I thought, let me put this... Oh, I, I, my husband's and my son's papers are at the Amistad Research Center in the in the archives. I said I need to oh, send great. it to to them. I didn't. I didn't send it, and oh. the fire took it. What the what the flood didn't destroy, the fire took, and the fire hoses. Mm. So you know, valuable papers I lost, and as I say, photographs of, of mm-hmm. from all the years that. My husband was in public life. Mhm, mhm. Now you mentioned something about uh, Ruby Bridges. Mhm. And just what this little girl was going through. What was the the general mode and mood in New Orleans during that period of time? Well, the schools had been integrated by law. And it was announced that black students were going to come to these two selected schools. I guess they didn't want to do it uh, citywide because they didn't want to cause, you know, riots and so forth. But in those two schools, Ruby Bridges was the only one uh, going to France school. There were three little girls going to McDonough 19. They had to be, she had to be escorted into the school by United States Marshals. And 
all in front of the schools. There were mothers who did not allow their children to go to school, who were jeering and spitting on her and just saying, chance, two, four, six, eight, we don't want to integrate. She she was five years old. She probably wondered what was going on. Wasn't even mm-hmm. couldn't even comprehend what all of this meant. But she was she had to be escorted by U.S. marshals for several days until her parents stopped coming. But then that whole year, she was privately tutored. Mm-hmm. The white the few white students that went were were discriminated against so badly that they had to leave town. There was one family uh, who sent his children to the school, and they picketed their house, and they, you know, they, they just made life so miserable for them that they left the city. It was very ugly that these mothers not only kept their children out of the school, but saw fit to go to the school and, and jeer and spit on them, and it was it was horrible. Right, it was it was just a, a a very difficult time. I remember seeing some of this on television, and mm-hmm. even hearing Ruby um, as a, as an adult describe what it was like as a child to go to school and have the uh, marshals go with her to the front door and to have these people lining up, jeering her and and, and just taunting her as she walked in. I mean, I just can't imagine having that type of of experience. Something that that I would think... Go ahead. At that age, I mean, she was five, five years old. And yeah, she has written yeah. a book about it, though. She has she has landed on her feet, and she speaks yes, she all has. over the country mm-hmm, about yes, that experience yes, and what what it had what it did to her. It made her strong. Mm-hmm. 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 Yeah. And there the comments in the uh, chat room like these are now the 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 ladies that you're talking about that were jeering at her. Uh, they're in their 90s now, nursing homes, and who voted to make America hate again uh, in the recent election. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, people are commenting, grown people yelling at a baby. I mean, Uh this is just, this is is the way it was. It's uncivilized. It's uncivilized. It's not what America is about. It's not what we want Mm -hmm. to be. Mhm. Mhm. And and you know so, Jim Crow is hovering over us again. Yeah. Because there've been limit there've been restrictions on the Voting Rights Act through the Supreme Court. You know our mm-hmm. our freedoms are being eroded. Mhm. So mm-hmm. we have to get, we have to get on the case again. We have to Go get to on the, the case and we have to re, we have to talk about it. We we exactly. can't just just not Talk about what's what's happening, and just think mm-hmm. that oh oh wow this this can't be true. Mm-hmm. And you know one of the things with your memoir is that you you're bringing it up. You're you're you know as I was reading it, I was saying oh I remember this. Mm-hmm. I remember mm-hmm. when this happened, 
And are the young people understanding? And have you even had an opportunity to share your memoir with some of the young people? Yes, incidentally, just yesterday I spoke to a class at Xavier University. It's a a class on um, uh, race and ethnicity. And they, one of the requirements was to read my book. And so I spoke to the class. Um, and these young people are, they were very excited to read the story of Jim Crow and how we lived. Mm-hmm. And they recognized mm-hmm. that, you know, some of this hate has arisen to, has risen to the surface. Some of it has always been there. But it's yes. to the surface with this last election. And this is what mm-hmm. I told them. We had a good discussion back and forth, and, and they're thinking. And I said, now it's on you. Your generation has to step up and do what needs to be done in this era when our freedoms are being eroded. And mm-hmm. they, were, they, mm-hmm. were, they were excited to talk about it and the possibility of what they could do and how. I said, you know, we didn't know what that change was going to mean. We didn't know how it was going to evolve. I said, but just stay alert. Uh, Stay close to those organizations that are trying to protect us and step in and, 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 and take your role. Be a part of it. That's right, and were any of them saying, yes, we want to become activists, we want to see change, we want to make certain that our community continues to grow in a positive way? Yes, but, you know, they said, well, what should we do? Uh, we, mm-hmm. we can talk about it, but how can we really make a change? I said, well, you have to be alert. You know, you have to, and the best way to do it is, the, uh, is people power. You know, one person, mm-hmm. that we, we, we may not ever have another Martin Luther King to speak up for. Mm-hmm. He, was, he was a gift. He was magic, not just for our people, but for, but for the whole country, because he raised their level of consciousness about this being wrong. I said, you, you know, your own little group, well, are you talking about it? Are you reading the newspaper? Uh, they read it online now. Are you watching mm-hmm. the news stories, uh, stories? The the old regular organizations, the NACP, the Urban League, find out what they're doing. But there will be new groups that are evolving, and you just have to make mm-hmm. an effort to find out what is going on and how I can be a part of it. Don't just sit back and let somebody else do it. You are educated. You are thoughtful young people. So get out and get involved. And that's a very good message. Mm-hmm. You're educated. You can do it. Get out. Right. Get involved. Uh, stay alert. Now, I have a caller, uh, area code 901. Do you have a comment or a question? You're live. Okay, I guess the, the, a question wasn't coming in. But I think that's a good message that you are giving to the young people to get involved. Mm-hmm. 
And so, you know, tell us, just take us a few more minutes because we will be getting close to the end of the show. Just where has your activism taken you since the voter registration? And uh, just just tell us more about your, your experiences and your witness to change. Yeah. Well, I became involved in organizations that that were focused on things that I had an interest in. Um, I was active in, in the Urban League. I was on, uh, on the Urban League board for 13 years. But I was active in other organizations that had a much smaller influence. But as I, I, I tell everyone, one person can make a difference. Don't think that, you know, my participation doesn't count, my vote doesn't count. It's not much. What is one vote? It is one vote because you multiply that by more people, and then you've got you've got a movement going. So mm-hmm. um, I'm trying to think of the things that I, besides the Louisiana League of Good Government, I, I was involved in uh, uh, children's activities. I was involved in the Arts Council for, for Adults. I was involved in the Arts Council for Children uh, that set up summer workshops for, for children, and these were, were integrated. We went out to the Black schools are predominantly black schools. They were integrated, but they were predominantly black neighborhoods and encouraged them to come to uh, these summer camps that would enrich their their lives. Um, I was was on many, many boards, Uh, boards that I had an interest in, but boards that I committed to. I didn't just go to board meetings. I was very Mm -hmm. active on those boards. And so that's been the way uh, uh, throughout my life. I can't even name the many boards I've been on, and I'm still active uh, on many boards. I'm active uh, with the Amistad Research Center, which collects um, original material so we can write our history accurately. Right. And tell us a little bit more about the Amistad Research Center. Well, it was it was organized back in 1966 at Fisk University by a man who did his dissertation on the American Missionary Association, which was the organization that established all these black schools in the South after the end of slavery, the high schools and colleges for blacks all over the South. So he used their materials, their minutes and their meeting reports and all of that to tell the story. So they collect, the Amherst Research Center collects materials from people, letters and minutes of organizations and all kinds of papers that tell the story. As I said, my husband's papers are there, my son's papers are there. Because in the past, white people have been writing our history, and that's all well and good. But it was from their perspective. We need our history to be written by us also because we mm-hmm. lived it. And so that organization continues to collect, we call it, to collect the papers of people. You know, we collected, uh, we, don't, we don't have Martin Luther King's papers. We don't have Andrew Young's papers. But we have many, many important people that were involved in, uh, our freedoms after uh, the Emancipation Proclamation. And um, 
I'm still, and so we're still collecting. I mean, we even have have papers on the hip hop movement. That's how recent mm-hmm. uh, we we do because, you know, before you know it, we'll be, you know, twenty years past when it was started, and now we can get the people who, you know, that it evolved in their lives. So I'm active with that. I'm also involved uh, with the Liberty Bank, which is a minority bank. I've been on that board for many, many years, and it was very important uh, to blacks in this community because businessmen, many of them could not borrow from white banks to start businesses. It was difficult many times for black people to get loans to buy houses. Uh, So it continues to be very active in the black community, and we are competitive with the white banks. So Mm -hmm. uh, I'm on that board. Um, Let's see what else do I I have. Oh, I'm uh, on the board, and I was one of the uh, uh, first board members of the Science and Mathematics High School, which was established in 1993. Now, what is special about this Science and Math High School is that we have what is called open admissions. Many of these specialized schools, you have to, they're selective admissions. You have to pass a test. You have to have certain grades, you know. So um, we, we let anybody uh, come to our school. But we provide the extra supports that they need, the tutors, um, the after-school activities that will strengthen uh, their learning. Um, it, it's a wonderful school that is almost competitive with the selective admissions. And as a teacher, I have just been enthralled to see how successfully these young people can be. It's a high school. How successful they can be with the supports they need. They haven't had the, the they haven't been in the good schools to, to, to make them up to grade level, but we bring them up to grade level. We have social workers who help them with their personal lives. We have uh, tutors that come. We have tutors that come from the universities. We have all kinds of uh, specialized teachers to bring these kids up to date. And our teachers, all of them, have master's degrees in the sciences. So it's, it's a wonderful school. It shows that children can learn at a high level if they're give, given all the things that they need, all the tools that they need to be successful. I'm still on that board. I'm, I, I'm the, what, what, what is called the old buffaloes. I'm still there. Because every, <laughs> every time I think, I said, you know, I don't need another board meeting to go to. But every time I go, I get so excited because I hear yes. wonderful <laughs> things about these children. This last uh, uh, graduation, I was a commencement speaker, and many of those students know me. And they were absolutely rapt. They they were sitting right in front of me in a group. They they hardly blinked an eye. They were listening to me. I was talking to them not only as an activist, not only as a mother, and but also as a teacher. And I told them some things that you know. I, I said, I'm telling you. As I told my own children, I'm telling you this. And they said, well, Mama, we know that. Well, I know you know, but listen to me. 
I want you, every time you step in to make a wrong decision, I want you to hear my voice. And they applauded that. The mothers applauded that. So, you know, this, it was an experiment sort of in the beginning. But it's a successful experiment. But it takes hard work. You know, we have yes, to. Yes, it does take hard work. We have to work. intervene early enough so yes. they don't get too far behind. You have to recognize yeah. what's missing. Some of them have problems at home. And really, after Katrina, when many of the schools were not open, we opened. But the kids were living with with friends. The neighborhood networks were gone. The church networks were gone. So they were mm-hmm. living under stress. You know, they, weren't, they didn't have their family unit. And so that, those, those first four or five years after Katrina were very hard ones where we had to bring in a lot of professionals to, to achieve our goals. But it's a wonderful school, and every, kids want to come to our school, you know, uh, and they can come. Well, that's wonderful. Now, I have a question for you because I, I know about your, your Heidel family origin and the, the Whitney Plantation. How many opportunities have you had to just share your family origin with these students? And also, if you have a few more minutes, just share that with, with the listeners. Well, I'll tell you what. This is a story. I had been offered a contract with my publisher. Uh, it was about to go to press. And I said, wait a minute, wait a minute, I have another chapter. Because at that time, the Whitney Plantation opened, and I had documents that proved my heritage, and I wanted that chapter to be there. At Whitney Plantation, which is established as a slave museum, now there, there are many plantations along the river road, and the tour, their tours that that they go to these plantations and tell you of the wonderful life of the plantation owners. This is the first plantation that tells a backstory about the slaves and how they lived. Now, on Whitney Plantation, my great-grandfather was born a slave. He was the son of a slave woman and the brother of the mistress of the plantation. So that's where my, or not my, my origins are. We're still trying to track the tribe that, that my uh, African great-grandmother came from in Senegal. But we've traced the German side all the way back to Germany in the 1700s. And so I, t- I, I do a chapter on that, on that, uh, on my, as my paternal heritage. And I think it's very interesting. I think people need to know, and and white people are amazed. I mean, this is this is something that they have been in denial about. That you know, some of these um, relationships between slave and slave owner, that that they were consensual, they were not. Many of them weren't. These slave women women had to submit or they would be severely punished. So in a sense, it, it, in many cases, it really was right. Um, so anyhow, my great-grandfather, Victor, who was a product of uh, a Senegalese 
uh, African woman and uh, a family member of the plantation owner. Um, he had seven. He had eight sons, and they all were successful, even though the schools only ran up to fifth grade after Emancipation Proclamation. There were no schools for slaves. They weren't allowed to read and write. But after emancipation, the schools went up to fifth grade. So if you wanted your children to go beyond fifth grade, they had to come to the city. They had to leave the Mm -hmm. farm and come to the city. And that's what my grandfather did for my father, who was the oldest. He came to the city. He finished uh, high school. He attended straight, which was the university here. And then he had to leave and go to Howard University in Washington for medical school. And what he did, he promised his father, his his father said, I'm going to educate you, but you're going to have to help educate your sisters and brothers. And he did that. And so that generation, his cousins, they were successful businessmen, landowners, you know, um, and then came my generation. So really just... I'm just three three generations removed from slavery. My dad was two. So, you know, we moved along and were able to become professionals and uh, and then educate our children. And you have done just an excellent job with with your children, as you have mentioned in your book. And well, they also... Lived in- they lived. They, they, they lived. lived it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, I want to just thank you so much, Mrs. Moriel, for joining us tonight and for sharing with us your memoir, Witness to Change, From Jim Crow to Political Empowerment. And everyone else, please remember Your ancestors left footprints. Therefore, you should follow the clues that are presented to you through oral history, family records, and research at the National Archives and beyond. You can continue this discussion on the research at the National Archives and beyond and the AfroGenius.com Facebook pages. And also remember to listen to the African Roots podcast with Angela Walton-Raji on Friday. And congratulations, Angela, Walton Fry, uh, Angela Walton-Raji, for successfully writing over 50,000 words with the NaNoWriTo. Thank you so much for joining research at the National Archives and Beyond Blog Talk Radio, this show is sponsored by your host, Bernice Beebe's Genealogy and Educational Services, LLC, and my website is www.geniebroots.com. I look forward to all of you joining me next Thursday. This is your host, Bernice Alexander Bennett. Good night, everyone. Good night, Mrs. Morial. Thank you. It's been my pleasure.